Our scripture reading this morning is from the Psalms. It's a famous psalm. In fact, many of you probably know it by heart. It's the 23rd Psalm. And uh, we're going to read it in English and in Dutch and in Papimento, as we have been doing, and we'll do those one at a time. It's uh, interesting. I found this psalm this week. because of the text we're going to be studying in the book of John, I don't typically think of the 23rd Psalm as a messianic psalm, but I hope maybe as you reflect on it, uh, in the light of the story we're going to look at in the book of John later, that uh, you'll see how it applies even to Jesus himself. Here's the word of the Lord, Psalm 23. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Is there anything that might cause you to let go of your uh, dignity? There's, there's, uh, in this story we're going to look at today, someone lets go of her dignity. I just wonder what might cause me to do that. Now, some people who know me especially well might wonder what dignity I have to let go of, but that uh, still, uh, we maintain this sense of propriety, don't we? And certain things I wouldn't do because they're inappropriate or undignified. I wonder if there's someone I might meet that might cause me to uh, go a little crazy. I, I, well, I don't remember this, but uh, back in the 1960s, when the Beatles came along, a lot of people let go of their dignity, like young girls, mostly. Sports fans, I'm, I'm not a big sports fan, but I've noticed sports fans, when they're watching sports, are not really very concerned about being dignified or proper. Uh, That's why we call them fans, which is short for fanatic. (laughs) Or in the Bible, there's some stories like this. Uh, I think of the father of the prodigal son, when he sees his son in the distance, he runs to meet him. Now, 
you might not know this, but a man of his age and status should not run to meet anyone. People who saw this would be embarrassed for him. Or I think about the story of David when the ark is coming back and he's dancing before the ark and he's not uh, really uh, dressed appropriately. His wife, Michael, his wife says, you're dancing around in your underwear. You're not behaving like the king. And he says, I'll dance around in my underwear. The ark's coming back. But it was not dignified. This story has one of those in it. Let's just read the story. We're in John chapter 12, and we're going to read the first 12 verses. It says this, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. The first thing we might notice in this story is that there's a dinner given. And I cannot help but think this is a dinner of celebration because Jesus, who had been somewhere else in the wilderness for a while because there was a warrant for his arrest, uh, Jesus comes to Bethany because it's almost time for Passover. And Bethany is like the next town over from Jerusalem. It's very close by. So Jesus comes back to the town of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And uh, so the town, it says, they made him a supper. I think the people in the town said, we're going to put on a dinner for Jesus. Now, John also mentions this is six days before the Passover, and what that tells us is 
This is a Saturday, and so this supper is happening at the conclusion of Sabbath. It's a Sabbath. Now, what John doesn't mention here, though we could figure it out pretty easily, is it's less than a week before the crucifixion. I'd like you to think for a moment about Jesus in that situation. And they're going to throw a party, basically, a big dinner. It's Jesus, it's Lazarus, it's Mary and Martha, it's whoever owns this house. We learn in one of the other Gospels that the person who owns the house is this guy named Simon. Some people think he might even be related to Mary and Martha. Who knows who else? And 12 disciples, it's kind of a big feast. And so at this dinner, we also notice that Martha was serving and, of course, given what else we know about Martha from the Bible, this is no surprise. This is how Martha expressed her love and affection for people. She was a natural hostess. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Now, it's important that the, it is mentioned here that they're reclining at the table because in this culture at that time, Reclining at the table was reserved for basically for celebratory meals, for formal dinners. Like if you had a dinner party, you'd recline at the table. But if you were just eating supper at your house, you'd sit in chairs at a table like everyone else. This tells us something about the type of dinner that this was. It's fitting the occasion, and of course, at the beginning of the story, as John does at various times in the rest of the book of John, he says, Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the death, from the dead, it's like this has become Lazarus's last name, the one Jesus raised from the dead, Lazarus. Whenever Lazarus gets mentioned, you see this again at the end of the chapter, but the chief priests I'm sorry, uh, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake, but also that they might see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Like you hadn't already mentioned that a few times. And of course, it's huge. And it has, we already know, uh, intensified the drama that Jesus generates. Because because he raised Lazarus from the dead, many people were flocking to Jesus and believing in Jesus. And as we read in chapter 11, the chief priests are, are worried. And they determine that Jesus needs to be put to death for this. And this has been announced by now. Everyone knows they're looking for Jesus. And so the situation is tense and full of drama. And everyone's aware. And here they're having this party. It's almost like a little Jesus enclave where all the people who are with Jesus are celebrating 
Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus and the demonstration of Christ to be the Christ. It's a momentous occasion, this dinner. And in the middle of dinner, something horrible happens. Mary has a pound of perfume. Now, I'm saying it like that because this is a lot of perfume. Mary goes overboard. That's all there is to it. It would be normal, though maybe not for the little sister of the guest of honor, but it would be normal to anoint with some perfume an honored guest at a banquet. That would be normal. But what that would mean is to put a small amount of perfume, they'd have these little flasks and they'd break open this flask and it'd be just enough and they'd put a small amount of perfume on the head of the honored person. That would be normal. And sometimes if some, if there was any kind of overflow, like some of the perfume dripped off their head, sometimes the guest of honor would return the honor by taking that excess and anointing the person who had anointed them. That could happen. But the, the person doing the initial anointing, the one who would come to Jesus and put some perfume on Jesus, would be humbling himself before the guest of honor. Mary did not do this the normal way. It says here in the book of John, she anointed the feet of Jesus. And in my study, what I've discovered is most likely what this means when it says she anointed the feet of Jesus is she anointed Jesus all the way down to his feet. And she had a pound of perfume, so I guess that's possible. <clears throat> so this is like from head to toe. It's like she's anointing Jesus, and it's all over him. And it gets on his feet, and she wipes his feet with her hair. This is an act of pure devotion, of deep devotion. And this is understandable given who we're talking about, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. The celebration is going on with everyone, but think, who is the, the one who, mo who might most appreciate Jesus, who's overcome with devotion to Christ. And this is uh, extravagant. We later find out, if we read down the page, Judas mentions how much 
this much perfume would be worth. It's what he says is 300 denarii. Let me just say, a denarii is a day's wage. 300 of those is a year's wage. A year's wage. This is a huge expense. An extravagant expense. This perfume, we don't know where Mary got it, but it would have been likely a family heirloom, a prized possession, and reserved for maybe only the funeral of a a close loved one. Hmm. Like Lazarus. And let's think about a year's wage. Now, of course, there's lots of different years' wages. It depends on where you are and what you do, of course. But let's just give it a value of, say, $30,000. Just think about that for a second. And even if that's wherever you are seems high for a year's wage, say it was half that. Say it was $15,000. Mary just took $15,000 and poured it on Jesus. That is, I'm not, I, I, I use the word extravagant, but is that a good enough word? It's crazy. Has she lost her mind? Hmm. It's unabashed. It's over the top. <laughs> it's undignified. It's maybe even immodest. Here's something. It's humble. And it's not just humble. It's humble, humble. Humble, humble, humble. Mary is putting herself in the position of a slave. Only the lowest slave washed feet. Oh, and this reminds me, in chapter 13, someone else is going to wash feet and put himself in a position of a slave. But she puts herself in the position of a slave. Undoing her hair in any kind of public setting is everyone is looking at her like, what? What is she doing? And then wiping someone's feet with her hair. She's taking the position of that one where the excess of the perfume might be put back and it's put back in her hair from his feet. Here's the thing. Mary's glory is in serving his honor. 
This is one of the most pure acts of worship you will find in the Scripture. It's absolutely complete, her devotion to Jesus. I would say this, Mary's experiencing a true Sabbath this day. A rest from work, a total appreciation of her God. But here's the thing. Everyone there would have been at least a little bit embarrassed for her. Everyone there. And in the other Gospels, we read it wasn't just Judas. It was the disciples in general were like, what? They're, they're looking at her like, oh, what is going on with this woman? What is she doing? Now, here in the book of John, Judas is the one who speaks. But we might notice that Judas is not speaking for himself alone in expressing some dismay at this insanity. Now, I don't think Judas is particularly concerned for Mary's dignity. He doesn't say, Mary, you're embarrassing yourself. Stop it. He doesn't say that. Mary, Judas says what I just said a minute ago, $30,000! Hello! <laughs> That's what Judas says. He says, she's wasting it. You're letting her waste it. I do uh, find it a little uh, concerning that the person I most sympathize with in this story is Judas, but here he says, he, what, what Judas sees here is Mary like setting fire to $30,000 in cash. That's what Judas sees. Now, that isn't very sympathetic. I mean, if Mary is losing her dignity here, that might also be important to someone. But that's what Judas sees, the great value of this resource. <clears throat> and he says, well, uh, we, that could have been sold and given to the poor. Now, John tells us Judas didn't really care about the poor either. <laughs> he was more concerned about having it. And I think, I, this, this got me thinking, like, well, what if they did sell it and give it to the poor? Then whoever they sold it to should sell it and give it to the poor. Apparently, it can never be used as perfume to anoint someone in Judas's way of thinking. He sees Mary setting fire to $30,000, and he sees Jesus letting her do it. And here's the thing. Given the immense value of this resource, you could do a lot of helping poor people 
with that amount of money. Now, John, as we mentioned, John says, now Judas doesn't really care about the poor. He's a thief. He wants the money in the treasury, so then he has some opportunity at it. And I think, well, yeah, so Judas' motives, we, we all know, we all know <laughs> Judas' motives are always messed up. Uh, but does that mean he's wrong? What about it? What about what you could do being given up for this great demonstration of affection and devotion to Christ? Well, fortunately, Jesus was there. <laughs> and Jesus responds to this challenge, to this dispute. You see, Jesus sees another significance to this anointing with perfume, right? A deeper significance than Mary or Judas or anyone else there. Jesus is aware of his impending death, a less than a week away. Imagine what Jesus thinks when Mary comes and does this. Well, he tells us what he thought. Jesus is aware of his death, that it's very close, and he's also aware of its absolutely unsurpassed significance. There is nothing more significant ever than the death of Christ. And he knows this better than anyone. So he says, she may keep it for the day of my burial. In another, in another one of the Gospels, he says, she's anointing me beforehand for, for burial. So she saw this as an anointing of honoring a special guest, a person of great import. He sees it as an anointing for burial. They're both right. She's not aware. She's like Caiaphas, the high priest, who, uh, who prophesies Jesus' death for the salvation of the nation without knowing what he's saying, really. She's in a similar place. She's anointing Jesus without being particularly aware <laughs> that she's prophetically recognizing the sacrificial death of Christ. Jesus says, you have the poor, you always have the poor to help. I'll be gone soon. This is a once, not a once in a lifetime, a once in history thing. Mary's embarrassing act of devotion is more than warranted. You know, what we might do for the poor is nothing compared to the possibility 
of fellowship with God in Christ. In fact, as Christians, I don't know that we should be going around doing a lot of service to the poor without mentioning the possibility of reconciliation to God in Christ. As Paul says it, he calls this possibility, fellowship with God in Christ, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Or in Philippians chapter 3, I count it all, and the thing he's mainly talking about there is his own righteous deeds, including a lot of helping the poor. I count it all to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There is no greater value than the value of knowing Christ. Our attachment to Christ is the prize. You would be a fool not to pay $30,000 for it. In fact, that would be a bargain. In fact, there isn't enough money in the world to estimate its value. It is the prize to be united to Christ. And our union with Christ is in his death and resurrection. So when Mary expressing her deep affection, her pure devotion to Christ, pours out a perfume anointing him for death. It's the most beautiful picture of this prize of our union with Christ in his death and therefore in his resurrection. Jesus sees all this in the moment I can imagine tears coming to his eyes. He's moved by Mary's devotion. You see, the possibility of our devotion to him is the thing he will die for to reconcile us to God. And Mary's exhibit of that devotion prepares him to die for that devotion. It's the most beautiful picture. And his death is the thing that merits that devotion. And when I stop and listen to the words of Jesus, I think I forget entirely That problem that Judas had, that I also had, how could she do that? And instead, I think, how could she not? How do I not? You see, our devotion to Christ is the thing itself. The deeds we do out of that devotion are just the side effects And I never deed my way into reconciliation with God. 
that is only purchased by the death of Christ. Our devotion is the thing, not the deeds that that devotion produces. John Piper says in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he says, Worship is the goal and the source of all missionary work. I'm not doing missionary work so that people will be saved, period. I'm doing missionary work because God deserves the honor that saved people will give him. As the book of Ephesians said, it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. The end is not even our salvation. It is the praise, the devotion, the worship, the great Sabbath resting worship of knowing Christ, of knowing God in Christ by the Spirit. Now that should and will (laughs) lead us to do a lot of things. In fact, I think if we focus on devotion, we'll end up doing a lot more helping poor people. But the devotion is the thing itself. Now this story concludes like this. Large crowds of the Jews then learned that he was there after this dinner. They came, not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And this (laughs) leads the chief priests to plan to put Lazarus to death too. Now, I think we can no longer argue that they are in a position of honest disagreement. I think at this point, we have to notice they are in bald-faced opposition at any cost. There's no denial of the resurrection of Lazarus. But the resurrection of Lazarus to these men is dangerous. Think of it. Where Mary sees the Christ, the Son of the living God, her Savior, Lazarus's resurrector, her uh, God, they see enemy. People flocked to Bethany when they heard that Jesus and Lazarus were there. Wow. Many believed in him because belief in Jesus was dangerous to the nation. It became dangerous to Lazarus. You see, these chief priests... They had a particular idea of what the Messiah would do. 
And their idea of what the Messiah would do is to uh, to crown their righteousness, to vindicate their righteousness and the righteousness of Israel. That's why they were such overbearing legalists. They believed in law-keeping. And what Messiah would do would be to come, cast off the yoke of foreign rule, and vindicate the nation of Israel in its own righteousness. Well, that was a bad messianic theology, and I think even a careful reading of the Old Testament would lead you to understand that was not a very, uh, well, correct theology of Messiah. Because Messiah is so often presented as a suffering Savior. Suffering for the sins of his people. But that was their theology. So they got to get rid of Lazarus too. But you see, Messiah is not a crown for our own righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. Like Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith in Christ. The righteousness I have in Christ is not mine. It's his. It's the righteousness that he lived out in those 30-some years he was living on this world. That righteousness I get credit for because I'm united to him, a thing made possible by his death and resurrection. He is our righteousness, and he is our atoning sacrifice. This chapter is a transition in the book of John. And we're going to see as we go forward, this is when Jesus starts talking about the fact that he's dying. And for me, it's an important insight to notice we are at this point in the story already within that last week. So this is very much on his mind. We'll read in this chapter uh, that he was stressed out. That's too casual a way of putting it. That, here he is at this dinner and here this precious woman, this friend of his, just pours out literally her devotion on him. And he sees, oh, oh, that's anointing for burial. 
That's not just the perfume of honoring a special guest. That's anointing for burial. And his death, that thing she appreciated, is the thing we appreciate. I started by asking you, is there anything that could cause you to lose your dignity? (laughs) I think sometimes worship might be undignified. I guess my question is, should it always be? The answer to that is probably not, but think about it. And I think about my own life and how I emphasize what I'm getting done quite a bit. I don't emphasize much my devotion to Christ. I often skip over devotion to Christ and jump right ahead to what can I do for Him. I can imagine Him being a bit dismayed by that. Maybe a lot. We know that after this, Judas really made up his mind. In fact, in one of the Gospels, he goes from this encounter straight to the authorities. So Jesus' rebuke here pushes the story ahead. I just want to encourage you, don't be looking for the wrong kind of Messiah, the one that crowns your goodness. Forget about your goodness and come to Christ for his. Father, we give you thanks. You are good to us. Lord, I think there's not enough. There's not enough resources in the whole wide world to be thankful enough, to show enough devotion. Lord, we give you thanks. We pray that your spirit would keep this attitude alive in our hearts to generate the love of God in us that we might reflect it to you and share it with each other and the world around us. For all these things we give you thanks in Jesus' name and by the Spirit. Amen.